welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is November 2nd, 2023, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is, I get knocked down, but I get up again. Do I have a scaphoid fracture? And our guest skeptic is Dr. Matt Schmidt. He's an orthopedic surgeon that subspecializes in adolescent sport and hip preservation. He's in the process of transitioning out of the U.S. military after a 20-year career in the Air Force, thank you for your service, and soon to be a clinical professor of orthopedics at UC San Diego. Welcome back to the SGEM, Matt. Thanks, Ken. It's my pleasure to be here. And as you mentioned, I'm still technically in the military, so the, the usual disclosure that anything I say does not represent the views or interests of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force, but I'm excited to join you for today's podcast. Well, I'm glad you got that out of the way. Uh, we've done a couple of episodes together. The first time was back on SGEM number 365, looking at the evidence behind the top 10 elective orthopedic procedures. Now, only two of those procedures had high quality evidence of superiority over non-operative management. Those were carpal tunnel decompression and total knee replacement. That episode probably did not endear you with many of your orthopedic colleagues. <laughs> You're right, Ken. I did catch a little bit of flack for it. But remember, the basis of this show is that it's about the, the, the evidence. Uh, we should note that there were two surgeries in that cohort that just didn't have high enough level of evidence, arthroscopic meniscal repairs of the knee and total hip replacement. That doesn't mean that we can conclude that these surgeries don't work. It's just we didn't have high enough evidence. As an expert in hip preservation, I know that they work, but there, there are the other six procedures do have high level of evidence that fails to demonstrate superiority of surgery over proper non-operative management. Yeah, we always have to be careful not to overinterpret or underinterpret the evidence. Now, the last time we recorded, it was poolside in Key West, Florida for SGEM number 385. Now, unfortunately, since then, we've lost the legendary Jimmy Buffett. Yeah, you know, what a great setting to have uh, to have that uh, podcast uh, tape. So now we're in separate locations. We don't have the uh, uh, the birds chirping outside. We're inside, but I'm still excited to be here. And hopefully, we can meet again in, in Key West sometime in the near future. Well, I'm recording this from the Bat Cave, the home office, Mission Central. But you're over in Spain. What are you doing in Spain right now? Yeah, I'm on the uh, I'm on the Mediterranean coast of Spain with USA Rugby. I'm one of the team physicians for USA Rugby, and we've got a little competition going on here between us and Brazil and Canada and Spain. And so we're facing off against Brazil next weekend, and Canada's facing up against Spain. And then the winners and losers will play the weekend after that. So um, it's not quite as nice as Key West, but uh, you know, November on the Mediterranean coast of Spain isn't isn't that bad either. Yeah, I don't want to hear any complaints, okay? We had snow yesterday. <laughs> but that episode in Margaritaville, we looked at non-operative management of scaphoid fractures. Can you just remind the SGMers, what was the conclusion from that SGM episode? Yeah, there, there were several limitations in the study, but the conclusions is that there was a lack of evidence that demonstrates superiority of operative compared to non-operative management of non-displaced or minimally displaced scaphoid fractures. Well, that gets us to the topic of today's episode. We're still talking about scaphoid fractures, but we're not going to be talking about operative versus non-operative. We're going to be looking at diagnostic accuracy. So start us off with a case. Sure thing. So 
24-year-old manual laborer presents to the emergency department, the ED, after drinking maybe a few too many beers. He's has, he has a disagreement with another beer drinker and gets knocked down. The mechanism was described as the classic foosh injury or a fall on an outstretched hand. The examination on this patient reveals he has pain along the wrist and in his anatomical snuff box. However, the x-rays are read as quote-unquote normal by radiology. Well, fractures of the scaphoid are the most common carpal fractures presenting to the emergency department. One of the best systematic reviews and meta-analyses on the topic discussing the diagnostic accuracy of the history, physical examination, and imaging is by my BFF, Chris Carpenter, from Academic Emergency Medicine almost 10 years ago now. And we went into some of that detail back on SGEM uh, 385, but we're not going to go into that today. Right. So many potential scaphoid fractures are immobilized, but this can obviously be a detriment to someone's job, especially if they're a manual laborer or have to use their, use their hands on a daily basis and, and also your activities of daily living. We know that initial x-rays only pick up about 17% of scaphoid fractures, and then having patients follow up in a couple of weeks for repeat x-rays can pick up about another 7% more. The issue comes in is that if these, if these fractures are missed, they can really lead to long-term problems uh, for the patient with regards to wrist arthritis. Yeah, that scaphoid bone in the carpal bones, that's one of the really, really important. Some people might argue the most important bone in the of the carpal bones. It has a whole bunch of articular surface and it is so fundamental for the motion and movement that we have in our wrists. Yeah, that's right. You know, we actually have there we have described a very particular and predictive pattern of arthritis that goes along with scaphoid nonunion. So over the course of 10, 15, 20 years, we really see deterioration of the wrist joint, which can be very problematic for someone that's a manual laborer or uses, uses their hands for work or, or activities of daily living. Well, we said that, you know, plain old x-rays aren't that great. MRIs, they're a lot better. They have greater diagnostic accuracy, but they may not be available in some areas and can be expensive. A CT scan, it's not as accurate as an MRI, but it does come with a different type of cost, and that's radiation exposure. Yeah, clinically, you know, in the orthopedic clinic, what we do is a lot of times we'll re-examine these patients after a couple of weeks and see if they're still tender, take repeat x-rays. And we still have that kind of clinical question of what, what is the next step? Uh, an MRI is, is considered the gold standard, but can sometimes be hard to obtain, whether if you're in a fixed cost system or, uh, where there's rationing of care in the military or, or, if, or for a patient, it can be hard too to, if, depending on what their deductible is, to obtain an MRI. So is there something better or more you know, that, that equates to that gold standard that we could pick up on physical exam would be fantastic and not have to run everyone through an MR scanner for some wrist pain? So what's the clinical question we're going to try to answer on today's podcast? Our question is what to do with a patient who presents with a foosh injury has a normal x-ray. Are there clinical findings in the exam that can help us rule in or rule out a scaphoid fracture? And so what reference do you have for this? This was a Coventry et al. article, uh, which was titled, Which Clinical Features Best Predict Occult Scaphoid Fractures? It was a systematic review of diagnostic test accuracy from the Emergency Medicine Journal from August of 2023. All right, let's run through the PICO. What was the population they were looking at? These were patients that had a clinical suspicion of having a scaphoid fracture, but a normal initial x-ray. Yeah, and then they excluded studies that did not have enough information to create that 
classic two-by-two table, even after they tried to reach out to the study authors and get the data to create a two-by-two table. How about the intervention? They looked at various physical examination maneuvers. Yeah, and so we really don't have anything to compare to. What we're talking about is the outcome. And so what was the outcome of interest in this study? They were looking at the diagnostic accuracy expressed as sensitivity, specificity, and likelihood ratios. So the authors concluded no single feature satisfactorily excludes an occult scaphoid fracture. Further work should explore whether a combination of clinical features, possibly in conjunction with injury characteristics such as mechanism and a normal initial radiograph, might exclude fracture. Pain on supination against resistance would benefit from external validation. End of quote. All right, let's run through quickly a quality checklist for systematic reviews of diagnostic studies. The first question is the diagnostic question. Do you think it's clinically relevant with an established criterion standard? Yes, it is clinically relevant. However, they did not use the best test, which is an MRI, and instead used delayed x-rays, CT scans, and even bone scans in some of the studies. Do you think the search for the studies was both detailed and <sighs> exhaustive? Yes, I do. They, they followed the PRISMA guidelines, they employed a research librarian, and they did not have any language restrictions. And what do you think of the methodologic quality of the primary studies where they assessed for common forms of diagnostic research bias? No, they did look at some uh, forms of bias, but they also missed some. And do you think the assessment of studies were reproducible? Yes, it was reproducible. And how about the heterogeneity for the estimates of sensitivity and specificity? Was it low? No, the authors correctly used a random effects analysis because of the high heterogeneity. Okay, the sixth and final question. The summary diagnostic accuracy is sufficiently precise to improve upon existing clinical decision-making models. No, it's, it's not sufficiently precise to improve. All right, so let's run through the results. They searched the world's literature, followed those PRISMA guidelines, and found eight studies. Now, four of those studies did include a small number of children. When they put all of those studies together, they found about 1,700 wrist injuries, but they didn't all have occult fractures. Out of the 1,700 wrist injuries included in the systematic review, there were only 9%. So that was 120 Three In the world's literature, they could find that had an occult scaphoid fracture, in other words, a normal initial x-ray. Most studies were reported as having a overall low risk of bias. So Matt, what was the key result that they found? When they looked at all the different physical exam findings, there were no, there was no physical examination that could rule out an occult scaphoid fracture with any amount of confidence. Yeah, because I'm really, I'm really interested in not missing something, right? So to rule it out. I mean, if somebody's tender, distal radius, snuff box, whatever, all that kind of stuff, you know that we're going to get some imaging on that individual. I want to know if I can rule it out with this diagnostic test, in other words, with physical exam. Exactly. So when they were looking at the primary outcome, and that was diagnostic accuracy, what did they find? They found that the best test for both positive and negative likelihood ratios uh, was pain on supination against resistance based upon one small study of only 53 patients 
and nine occult fractures. So 17% of the patients having occult fractures. Yeah. So that's not a lot of information to hang your hat on when you only have nine occult fractures. Talk about the prevalence, 17%. But in the world's literature, only finding nine for that one specific test that had the best diagnostic accuracy. So for a likelihood ratio positive, it was 45. And you go, whoa, that is amazing. But you have to look at the 95% confidence interval. Since it was such a small number of patients, that confidence interval was super wide. It went from around seven all the way up to over 300 around that point estimate. And then looking at the likelihood ratio negative, again, it looks pretty good. It goes from 0.1. 0.1. And you go, okay, is that pretty good to rule it out? But the confidence interval went from zero up to 0.7. And you know what? We'll put a table of the diagnostic accuracy of all the 13 different index physical exam maneuvers they did. And you can look at their likelihood ratios and sensitivity and specificity. We just wanted to pull off the best one for the audience. Matt? Let's talk nerdy. That's what I love to do. Okay. (laughs) You can do that while you're sitting there in that nice hotel room in Spain. Oh yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to go to Spain, spend time in the Mediterranean and talk nerdy with Ken. Oh, you're committed. It was on my list of things to do. (laughs) Well, guess what? You're you're the guest. I'm going to let you go first with the first nerdy point we wanted to bring out. Yeah, so let's talk about selection bias. The the authors mentioned that findings on physical exam contributed to the clinical suspicion of a fracture. And this can be a a source of selection bias. And what is selection bias? Well, the definition, according to the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine at Oxford, is that it occurs when individuals or groups in a study differ systematically from the population of interest, leading to a systematic error in an association or outcome. So essentially, because you know, we were already suspicious of them having a, a, a scaphoid fracture it can be prone to selection bias. Yeah. And when we say bias, we're talking about not random chance or random error, something that systematically pushes us or moves us away from the truth. And when I say truth, I'm talking about the best point estimate of an observed effect size. Well, the second nerdy point was about prevalence. Sensitivity depends on the spectrum of disease, while specificity depends on the spectrum of non-disease. So you can falsely raise sensitivity if the clinical practice has lots of very sick people in it, sicker than what you would see or what we would see presenting to the emergency department. Whereas specificity can look great if you have no sick patients in the cohort, like the worried well. Now, the prevalence of occult fractures in this study We mentioned it was less than 10%. It was 9%. And it's unclear if this prevalence would have changed the diagnostic accuracy for the various tests to make a clinically important difference. Now, if you want to take a deeper dive into this type of information about prevalence and its impact on sensitivity and specificity, I'll throw a couple of references in the show notes that you can look up. Yeah, the, the, the next uh, top of, type of bias would be the imperfect gold standard bias, otherwise known as the copper standard bias. And this is what, happened when you're, what happens when your quote unquote gold standard isn't really golden. It's not that good of a test. 
The test that is used to determine a patient's true disease status misclassifies some patients. Well, how does that relate to this is a copper standard can result in more false positives and or more false negatives. Uh, the authors in this systematic review mentioned that MRIs could, be, could lead to false positives based on the fact that we can see bone bruising or other nonspecific signal changes not necessarily representing a true fracture. In addition, CT scans, which are sometimes used, can show vascular channels, which can be misinterpreted as a fracture, otherwise known as a false positive. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, they talk about the gold standard and then they go to the copper standard. I think it would be nice if they had gone with the gold standard, and in this case, an MRI, and then talked about, I don't know, the silver standard for a CT scan. And then maybe the bronze standard was a bone scan. And then the copper standard may have been plain old x-rays or physical exam, the lead standard or something like that. They just went straight from gold to copper. Right. All right. Fourth nerdy point we wanted to talk about was clinical decision tools. Well, each individual exam was not enough to rule out an occult fracture. It is possible that a combination of some tests could work. This would be like the many clinical decision tools the very smart people out of Ottawa have created over the years, including the ankle, the knee, the head, the C-spine, the subarachnoid hemorrhage. They call them rules. I call them tools. Now, we've covered many of these on the SGEM, and I know our good friend, Dr. Justin Morgenstern from First 10 EM, has some pretty strong thoughts about clinical decision tools. Maybe you should go check out his site. I'll, I'll preface it with the title of his is, Are Clinical Decision Tools Ruining Medicine? Oh, Justin, what do you really think? <laughs> Yeah. And our, our fifth nerdy point to talk about today is the concept of chronologic bias. And this is a form of bias that is not often mentioned. Chronologic bias is when there's long gaps between when the patients were recruited into a study or when the studies were performed. In the case of this systematic review, technology has obviously improved over the last 34 years of research from 1987 to 2021 uh, that these studies were pulled from. Gone are the days of plain, plain x-rays with quote-unquote wet reads. Now we have digital radiography allowing us to change the grayscale, alter the contrast, and zoom in on the image so you don't have to use your monocular to look at the, at the images in a dark room or on one of those lighted boards that are now uh, extinct. Yeah, I've been around medicine for almost three decades now, and I remember doing wet reads. Now with digital radiography, uh, you know, I'm getting, you know, closer to 60 than I am to 50 now. I appreciate that zoom function. I can just zoom really in close, unnecessarily close up and really look for some of those subtle changes that I may have missed or had to use some kind of magnifying glass in the past. All right, Matt, it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. Well, we generally agree with the author's conclusion that there is no real good physical exam finding to rule out a scaphoid fracture. Yeah. So can you summarize that into a, what we would uh, formally call a tweet, but now we'll just call a post as an SGEM bottom line. How would you put that on a post? Yeah. The bottom line is that there is no single physical examination maneuver that can reliably rule out an occult scaphoid fracture. All right. Now, this is usually where I ask our guest to resolve the case, but you're our referral service. You're the guest, but you're also the referral service, the orthopedic surgeon. So you probably wouldn't be finishing up, you know, from the emergency department, this guy who got knocked down and got up again. 
Yeah, you're right. And if you called me in the middle of the night, I, I'm sure we would agree on the same form of treatment for this guy. And I'm sure we'd agree that what the heck are you calling me in the middle of the night over this, right? So uh, my case resolution would be I would not call my friendly neighborhood orthopedic surgeon about this foosh injury and a clinical scaphoid diagnosis. I would immobilize the patient with a splint and arrange for them to be seen by my friendly neighborhood orthopedic surgeon during daytime hours when the sun is warming the earth in their follow-up fracture clinic. That sounds like a perfect plan. And that's the way <laughs> we should be treating them. Well, I guess I guess uh, I'm up for the uh, clinical application then too. But you can chime in there and tell you, tell me what you would do um, from a clinical standpoint. I think. From my standpoint, this study confirms or validates um, what we already knew, and that is we don't have a good method for ruling out these occult fractures with physical examination alone. And each clinician will need to decide what's the best way to move forward with this case. How do I manage these patients in their own individual practice environments? Because we do work in resource rich and resource poor. Maybe I shouldn't call it that. How about I? Uh, uh, high thought, low tech is, is, uh, the rural area. Uh, we have to do a lot of thinking, but we don't have a lot of technology. One of the jokes I make is that the only cat scan I can get has four legs. Um, but you know, some places will have access to an MRI, the gold standard. Great. Others will have CTs. Some will have bone scans and others will just have clinical follow-up in a couple of weeks. Each of these is a reasonable approach to this common injury in our area where I practice, we typically have people follow up and do a repeat physical examination and repeat x-rays and then sort of figure out where to go from there if we need any more advanced imaging. But this study will not change my local practice. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, how, how, you know, with our technological advances, you know, how great would it be if we had quote unquote point of care testing where you could do something to, to rule out or rule in a scaphoid fracture. But this study shows that we just aren't there yet. Our, the physical exam findings aren't reliable to be able to rule out a scaphoid fracture. And so you've got to look at what your resources are and, and you know, it's probably best to refer that on to mobilize it in the short term, refer it on and, and let the, let the orthopedist decide what, what tools do they have to try and make that diagnosis. And since you mentioned point of care, uh, maybe our good friend Casey Parker could comment on whether or not point of care ultrasound has advanced to the point where you could safely rule out a scaphoid fracture. I haven't read that literature, but Casey, if you're listening, I hope you're listening, you could give us some feedback on whether point of care ultrasound, because wouldn't that be great if we could just do it at the patient's bedside, whip out the old ultrasound machine and say, yep, that's not fractured. Uh, I don't think we're there yet. Uh, eventually we might get to that Star Trek world where we go and go, yeah, rule in or rule out. Yeah. So what am I going to tell the patient? Well, you know, I'm going to tell this young man that you have a classic injury called a foosh, a fall on outstretched hand. Now the mechanism of this injury falling on an outstretched hand. It's really important because you can break an important bone in the wrist. It's called the scaphoid bone and it is a super important wrist bone. And the plain x-rays that we've taken often can't pick up this type of broken bone. The scaphoid bone might still be broken, or I usually say broken, fractured, cracked, because some people don't click that, okay, they said it wasn't broken, but is it fractured, doctor? So it's not broken. It's not fractured. It's not cracked. 
And even the x-ray doctor, that's called a radiologist, they can't even see the break. Nobody can see the break on that plain film. So you know what we're going to do? We're just going to put you into a splint, and that'll help with pain control, actually. So put you into a splint for some pain control, and in case it's broken. You can take some acetaminophen or some ibuprofen or both, if you want, for pain. And the broken bone doctors, the orthopedic surgeons, their office will give you a call to arrange an appointment. They may get a different imaging test when you go see them, like a CAT scan, an MRI, or a bone scan, to see if your wrist is broken or not. That sounds like a, that sounds like a great plan, and I think that uh, if you're upfront with patients about it and, and explain to them that we can't see it on imaging now, it doesn't mean that it's not there. Uh, let's let's protect you. Let's protect you from making this worse, and and follow you up in a in a more controlled setting uh, in the office where we can make a different uh, a different plan based on what the results show. All right, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. There was no winner last episode. The correct answer we were looking for was Vicodin. Vicodin is made of hydrocodone, which is about six times as potent as codeine. Therefore, it was thought that the manufacturer named it VI to start with for the Roman numeral six, and that added codin for codeine, and that's what gave you Vicodin. So what's the question this week? Yeah, you hinted at a, at a term a few times during the, the uh, recording here today. And I know there's enough young readers out there or young listeners out there that maybe don't know what a wet read is. So there's an old fashioned radiology term called a wet read. What did that actually mean? Yeah, so if you're old enough or do a little Googling, find out what a wet read meant when it comes to radiology. And if you know the answer, then send an email to the SGEM with Keener in the subject line. My email is thesgem at gmail.com. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Well, thanks, Matt, for taking some time out of your trip to Spain to talk a little nerdy with me. Thanks, Ken. I appreciate it. And hopefully uh, we can record one of these uh, next year in Key West. Yeah, that would be nice. You know, I just I just realized, though, this is episode number 420. And we went through this whole episode without making one joke about 420. Yeah, Ken, you know, I, I really have no idea what you're talking about. I technically am still in the military. Of course you don't. All right. Now, you were in Texas when we recorded our previous one, and I think I got you to get a Texas accent. But now that you're going to be living in California, do you think you can pull out a West Coast accent, dude? Yeah, brah. I mean, remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine, dude. Chaw. Sure.